0: and Julie Gordon. Jack and Julie own and run Quartz Aussie White Sheep Stud on their 150 hectare property just east of Forbes. Along with running 250 self-replacing stud ewes sourced direct from Taddy Keel Genetics, they sell rams right across New South Wales and grow grazing cereals to supplement their perennial grazing system. Jack and Julie are also recent participants in the Central West LLS ProGraze course which they both agree provided a great refresher on grazing management and has prompted them both to make more timely management decisions together. In this episode, Jack and Julie share with us that while they're managing a rather small land area, they operate an intense sheep breeding enterprise, investing in higher quality genetics and actively tracking individual performance using EID, then recording this pedigree information through BreedElite. You'll also hear how Jack and Julie have consciously selected Aussie Whites for their simplicity of management, explaining that the reduced resourcing needs from self-shedding sheep, amongst other things, has allowed them to both pursue off-farm careers, as well as running a profitable stud. Local Land Services Mix Farming Advisor, Rowan Leach, sat down with Jack and Julie at their Quartz Aussie White stud, just outside Forbes.
1: Guys, welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. Hello, Rowan. Hey, Rowan. Jack, I might get you to start us off with your operation at Courts Aussie Whites.
2: Yeah, well, look, we've got an Aussie Whites stud here that we started three years ago. It's a family operation uh, with Julie and myself. We've got four children. Two of those are away at uh, uni. Two are still here with us at school in Forbes. And... Um, We've got a place here, 20 k's east of Forbes, which is, uh, let's just say, 150 hectares, and we've in recent times set it up the pasture and uh, grazing crops, and uh, we started up an Australian white stud. Julie, what are some of the crops and pastures you've got here?
3: Last year we sowed ryegrass, annual and perennial.
1: And have you found the perennial has persisted as well as what you thought here? Normally I would sort of think perennial ryegrass is... Maybe not as suited to this environment. What have you found? Yeah, uh,
3: yeah, you know, we've been really happy with it, actually. We've had the moisture, which has been ideal, and so it's kept going, and it started to, with this year, we we're a bit worried about it in March, but after the rain and all that, it, things are kicked along again, which has been great.
2: So any other pastures, Jack? I guess the history of what we've done here, I have a background in agronomy, working as an agronomist or farm and in the commercial space for probably 30 years and so what we've done with the farm here is we've transitioned it away from a cropping program to pretty much a pasture program we've got annual pastures vortex ryegrass persian clover blance clover in some of those mixes we've got perennial pastures with um phalaris, fescue coxfoot some medics, We've we've really made an investment in pastures here, and we and we also annually grow some grazing crops. We've got bond oats in this year. We've got chicory and plantain out there. We sort of don't mind in small paddocks. We don't mind trying things, and it just works with the stud. So we're trying to maximise our productivity, off a small area, and that's why we've got a combination of perennials and and annuals to try and bulk things up at different times of the year when we need the we need the biomass for the feed demand that we've got.
1: And so have you got sort of nutritional requirements year round or you've got peak times that you need
2: it? It changes throughout the year, but I mean, we're obviously trying to match things up with our stud program with the Australian White Sheep is, as we've started, was heavily based around... We used to lamb down, scanty lamb studies we were buying in uh, September, October, and then we were setting those up for embryo transfer programs sort of April, May, the following year, and then lambing them down again in September. So we were trying to match up our available biomass in the paddocks with the demand we had around that sort of late September, October, November period, we were lambing, sort of late to fit into embryo transfer programs that we were were doing initially. So as we transition to more natural lambings, we're, we're going to sort of an April and a September lambing. So we've got ewes that we're trying to manage, lambs on the ground, rams we're trying to finish. Like we've got demand nearly all year round, really. So yeah, we're just trying to maximize the biomass we can produce.
1: Julie, how many sheep have you got?
3: We're running about 250 self-replacing stud use.
1: And where are those genetics mostly come from?
3: They're pure Taddy Kill genetics and each year we go back to the Gilmores at Taddy Kill and uh, yeah, we top up our genetics so we have the latest
1: genetics here. And how many rams roughly would you be selling out of those? What's the conversion rate?
3: This year we're hoping to sell about 80 on farm in September but Like we've been selling rams previously to that privately. And then at the beginning of this year, we sold some online. We had a sale through Auctions Plus and we sold some rams.
1: Was that your first sort of individual sale or have you been mostly selling out of the paddock before that?
3: That was our first sale that we had. Prior to that, we just were selling privately to anyone that sort of came along or that knew that we had Aussie whites. So, yeah, we're really happy with how the sale went. We had interest from all over New South Wales. So, yeah, just trying to grow the Aussie white and make people aware that we have Aussie whites and, and how good the breed is because there's still a lot of people that are unaware of what they are actually like.
1: Jack, it sounds like your operation's... While it's small, it's a really intense one. So have you found the intensity works for you guys?
2: We made it a strategic decision to go off the stud because we were on a, the land area we have here east of Forbes is smaller. We have some other country in different areas, but for what we're doing here, the stud just had a fit. And I guess I'm a numbers person, looked at the numbers, worked off farm looking at numbers and... The intensity of what we're doing has been a challenge. It was sort of kept us on our toes during the, uh, the last four years. But we probably see ourselves coming through, transitioning now into more of a stabilised program where we're doing more natural joinings. When you're investing in high-quality genetics and, and you're using embryo transfer to increase those numbers, there's a lot going on with small lots. But it's been something the whole family's embraced and got involved with but we're sort of hoping that it will and we can already see now as our numbers are growing and we're settling into more natural joinings we're reducing the amount of embryo transfer we're, we're doing now we're really just focusing that on our really top line genetics for example last year we we go and we buy 10 top line new stud used scanning lamb and we put that genetics into our et programs and that's just a way of keeping the the latest genetics at the top end of the stud but from an operational point of view the sheep are are really easy we're not chasing shearing we're not crutching we're not chasing flies with a hair shedding sheep we simplify that so we're reducing the labor units that are required to run the operation which means that with my off-farm work it means I can stay involved when I can but Julie's sort of here at home looking after the farm and doing the the ag admin work that she does as well it used to drive Julie mad with the we keep all our records in breed elite which Julie does and we track the weights like we're constantly collecting data on on the stock and so we can pull a you know if the EID tags that we're using we can have a a sheep come into the yards we can tell you what the pedigree is what its weight gain is we're tracking all that information so it, it has been intense. Julie you seem to be the one to ask about that
1: what is that?
3: Breed Elite is just a program that actually has all your records that you have for the stud animals. Um, it has every, you can put anything into it, like the weights, all data, like from birth right through to when you sell them. And then you can track husbandry, every, anything you do on them. We store our embryo transfer programs and all the joinings and matings that we have and the lambings. Each lamb that's born, each stud lamb that's born, is entered with all the details. It just tracks everything.
1: And I assume you're using electronic ID tags. Yes, we've
3: started EID when we first started the stud. That was something that we got onto straight away, and it's marvellous. You run them through and you track that individual sheep straight away, and you can bring up all the data when it's born, who the parents are, and carry it right through to the grandparents. Yeah.
1: Is that a tool probably just for stud people, or would commercial breeders find use out of it as well?
3: Yes, when we had our commercial line, I did have the information on breed elite. So you can use it whether you're a stud or commercial or both. So it's a one way of tracking your information.
2: We don't use the auto drafting functionality with it, but it is sold as a package and matched up for package so that large scale commercial producers can use it for auto drafting within their commercial mob. So, but only if you've got the EIDs in. So that having the EIDs in the sheep, gives you the ability once you've got the data to make management decisions and do that. So certainly it's not just a stud tool, but it could be used by large-scale commercial producers as well.
3: It's an easy way to download all your information, like all the data in one go, because there's a heap of Excel spreadsheets in behind and then it all comes together. So it is a marvellous software package.
1: So also you've got a real pastures focus and fodder cropping focus. So you guys have also completed a, a progress course how did you find that
2: yeah well the progress course was a great one we did the progress course together husband and wife team off we went to the field days and even though I had a background in agronomy I got a lot of value out of it it helped me understand the terminology properly rebooted a lot of the stuff that I had learned and probably forgot and and, reset. and It has helped me immensely to make management decisions here with the rest of the team about where we move stock. And then, I mean, I guess Julie could say from someone who hadn't done any agronomic focus.
3: Yeah, I found it really valuable because, yeah, I sort of went in very green. So what I learnt was now I understand what's happening and how to sort of monitor pastures better than before. So, yeah, it was a real learning curve for me. I found it great.
2: I guess the big thing is, Rowan, like I can come in now and I'll – If I do a lap around the sheep first thing in the morning and I might come in and make a comment about what's happening in a paddock, about the available food that's in the paddock and I'll say to Julie, I think we might need to move those sheep in two days, three days, whatever it is. Well, she might go and have a look herself or she'll say, yep, okay, that's good. And and we can have a more informed discussion about management decisions because we both have that base level knowledge. And Jack, you sort of just mentioned before that you're on maybe the breed society. Is that right? Yes, yeah, so I'm on the executive for the Australian White Sheep Breed Association and, and that, I guess that's an area of interest for me. You know, I have a background in sort of doing marketing and commercial stuff so really I've been involved in that now just this year, been on a few sort of subcommittees and stuff like that but got involved with that this year and well, it gives me the opportunity to talk to other producers out there about the features of the breed and help build that knowledge and awareness of, of Australian White Sheep. Yeah. So, It's something I enjoy doing. It takes a bit of time, but it's about juggling and sharing knowledge. So what are the features of the breed? The big one is that it's a hair-shedding sheep. So there's no need to shear. There's no need to crutch. There's no flies. Reduced labor requirements. So once you've sort of got your head around that, that it's a hair-shedding sheep, it's a self-replacing sheep. So once you establish your flock, you're buying rams in every year. That's what you're doing. So from a biosecurity point of view, it's really good.
3: And another big thing is too, they they can run in many different areas, like they run in Oberon, like where it's cold, where it snows, and then you can run them out back, you know, in the heat, like they're very adaptable sheep.
2: I mean, they are a polyesterous sheep, so they'll breed all year round. So depending on where you are, you can adjust your program your climate can match your breeding program. So if you like you can lamb them down once a year, if you like you can lamb them down three times in 2 years and that really accelerates the growth of a self-replacing flocks.
1: So they're different in that polyestrus that you're talking about. That's different to say a merino or a border lester.
2: One of the biggest issue with some of the other breeds is that you know they can't be joined all year rounds. But the Aussie white, they will join all year round. We're joining ewe lambs here, seven months of age, sort of at 50 kilos, 45, 50 kilos. They will join and those those ewe lambs will have a lamb on the ground next to them at 12 months of age. Now, that's not necessarily where everyone goes with the sheep. You've got to sort of have your program set up and running right to do that and then you can then rejoin that ewe in a cycle that has them joining three times in two years. That's like optimum production. You've then got to have the feed in your production system to be able to finish those lamps because if you think about it, all of a sudden you've got some pretty high reproduction numbers coming at you. It's a feature of the breed. You know, if we look at the weather at the moment, everyone's telling us we're we're going to be dry at the end of the year. Well, coming out of dry periods and trying to rebuild your flock, that's a feature of this breed which we really haven't seen taken advantage of yet by people in the livestock industry, but it also helps you when you get started very quickly build your numbers. So you become a seller of your weather lambs and in time you'll become a seller of self-replacing new lambs that other people are looking to buy.
3: Yeah. Another big thing is these Aussie whites are just putting their energy or their protein into producing meat, not wool, because they're just a haired
1: sheep. So that's a really
2: big thing. Julie's point is, I mean, they're a, they're a meat sheep. We're growing kilos of meat,
1: so they've got to be fertile in that case, yeah, and are you finding
2: that fertility are they have high rates of twinnings and and triplets? I mean, they are, but again, management will play a part in that. I mean we just did scanning here of uh, recently of our stud ewes that were joined naturally, and we were about one hundred and seventy five percent lambs on board for the ewes used scanned, which are numbers we're really happy with if people can get the results that they're looking for, you know, from 150, you know, I would say people will be getting say 130 to 150% conception in a commercial situation. But like any breed, management plays a part in that. So fertility. And then I guess the other big feature of the breed is the eating quality of the carcass. I mean, it is a replacement for, or in there competing with a second cross prime lamb in the processing. So High quality carcass, high yielding, the sort of yields you'll get out of these sheep are sort of 52, 53% carcass yield, you know, when they're finished under the, on good pasture or if someone wants to supplementary feed them to finish, they can feed conversion is really good, but that carcass yields a big one. And I guess the one that followed Aussie whites will know that the low melting point of the fat, which really drives the eating quality. So low melting point, sort of 34 degrees below means that you have a eating quality of that lamb, which is something that you, until you taste some and have some, it's hard to explain.
3: It's sort of like a very soft taste in your mouth and it doesn't leave that residue, sort of that fatty
2: residue in your mouth. So it's completely different to a, a wonderful second cross prime lamb of whatever breed that it is. You'll know that you've had a, a nice lamb chop. This is a completely different, it's a lot, lot probably milder, but you don't end up with that lamb lip balm on your lips at the end of the day.
1: So apart from sort of maybe some eating quality traits, what are the main
2: differences between Aussie whites and other shedding sheep? I mean, the Aussie whites are a hair shedding sheep. So some of the other shedding sheep are not a hair shedding sheep. they are still got a wool component to them. So that's the big difference. But, you know, an Australian white is a hair shedding sheep. So real you'll have some of the types in your flock that will grow a small coat and that'll shed off annually and they'll be clean. You know, they won't leave a saddle on the back. You'll have others that are nearly just like hair, like the hair coat is just there all year round. So from a shedding sheep point of view, they're a bigger frame sheep than some of the other shedding sheep, which gives you that bit bigger carcass, good conversion. You run them in any sort of environment. That's the big one though. Like it is hair shedding. So they'll be clean and temperament too. I mean, when we first came to this farm, as Julie said, we didn't have a shearing shed. And we had a a line of uh, white Dorpers, and we thought they were wonderful. They were wonderful sheep, but we couldn't put the kids in the yards. We didn't take the kids into the sheepyards with us to work. We were sort of conscious of that, whereas I, the temperament of the Australian white is completely different to the other shedding sheep that are out there. So that was a big one for us when we went back into Australian whites.
1: The Aussie white breed seems to have come from nowhere in the last few years. Can you maybe tell me a bit about the background of the breed and what
2: has formed it?
3: 2011, well, that's the year that the Gilmores
2: launched the Strain White. So the breed was effectively established by the Gilmore family and some other partners over at uh, Oberon, and they, they did a lot of work in combining four sheep that was put into the breed. They still to this day, but initially did a lot of embryo transfer work to create what is now a stabilised breed as a self-replacing flock. So, yes, so we had the Texel, Dorset. Von Rui and the White Dorper. There was four breeds that they started with. They weren't all. They were just any old sheep that came out at stumbling out of the paddock. They were all high-level, stud-quality sheep that had been identified, and then they went about crossing those breeds, selecting what they were looking for, and then they basically closed the flock and moved forward with embryo transfer work to improve and select the traits that they wanted. So still to this day... Taddy Keel run a closed flock at Oberon. They don't bring genetics in. It is a closed line. And that's the reason we go back there and get our genetics from Taddy Keel. We want the pure genetics. And the improvement in the breed over the, since 2011, has been phenomenal. That's driven by the amount of embryo transfer work they do, you know, to focus in on the, on the top line genetics. The breed, Aussie Whites, was a bit of a buzzword
1: there for a while. And, and maybe it was the shiny new toy, there were some pretty incredible prices being seen a few years ago. Julie, has the market settled down yet?
3: Uh, yes, the market has settled down now and I think it's become more realistic for people now that it's the entry level to get into Aussie Whites has become more acceptable, I guess, because it was quite phenomenal there a while ago with all the prices. So anyone that's sort of wanting to go down that path, I think it's looking more attractive and yeah, more feasible to do that.
2: What do you think caused the price volatility? The demand was what drove the prices. I say to people, look, if there's only one point where people were looking to secure the best genetics in the cattle industry, it would drive a rush to the door of that location that would drive, obviously, driving demand up and driving price pressure up. People are looking for assurity that they're getting quality. But what we're seeing now is that, if I go back to my point earlier on about the reproductive capacity of the breed, we're starting to get see lots more F1, F2 cross, F3 cross ewes coming into the market, ewes that are now pure commercial ewes that are, you know, people that have been in the breed for sort of seven, eight years that have now, they've reached a point where they're selling surplus ewes and breeding ewes back into the market. So, I mean, the whole market's come back, like all sheep have come back, but Aussie whites have come back now to a point where a producer can go out there and buy buy a ewe. Yeah, you know, at the moment, you could buy a young U in the market from anywhere from sort of 100 to $150, if you like. You can buy a Scandi Lan, Aussie White U. They're selling online now at the moment for $200. One of the numbers that I say to people is, if you're going to go out and buy a U, if you do the old 10 to 1, if you're going to pay $200 for a U, you might pay $2,000 for a Ram. Yeah, because people are saying, well, what are the numbers I should work on? Well, go and have a look at what the... What is the sheep market doing at the moment? And go and do your budget and your analysis on those numbers. And then your lambs that they're going to sell will be the same as any prime lamb that's out there. Go and talk to your agent about where you'll sell your lambs, whether you're selling them on contract over the hook, whether you're selling them in the, in the local yards. There's processes out there that are starting to, in the same way, they're just starting to see volume lines starting to come at them. For a long time, it was small numbers that they were able to pick up.
1: While we finish up on the Aussie Whites, we can put a link to your website or Facebook page in the show notes. But yeah, have you got a an open day or a, a sale day?
2: Yeah, so we typically look to run an open day towards the end of August each year. And then we we have our annual ram sale in, in September, in the third week of September. Yeah, you know, we've got a Facebook page, we've got a website, Quartz Australian White, and we keep everything up to date there. And, and what's going on, we, we get a few happy snaps from around the farm of different things that are that are happening. But yeah, and look, and the the doors and the gates always open for people that want to learn. We see ourselves as a conduit to information and knowledge for people in the Central West and the Lachlan Valley or or anywhere in New South Wales that want to learn and get access about information on Australian white sheep.
1: So on to the next topic, you guys both are working part-time in the business and a little bit off farm as well. How do you find the juggle between your day job and farming?
3: Well, I'd like to say it's really good because you know you can plan what you need to do within the Aussie white stud. So we know that we won't be chasing flies. We know that we don't have shearing or crutching. So that takes away a lot of stress, I guess, with the Aussie whites because we don't have that to deal with. So we just have the checking and the everyday things to do that you have to do with other sheep. But no, they're good to be able to plan and um, work around other things.
1: So for others out there that aren't into the Aussie white thing, you'd probably just recommend a low labour enterprise.
3: Absolutely. No labour. You don't have to bring in extra labour, I guess, to help you do the work. There's less chemicals. You don't have to uh, treat them for flies or lice. So you're not using as the chemicals.
2: The biggest one is, I guess, you're not dependent on other people. So even though we're only operating on a small area here, we have our own Agro drill that we sow with, so for sowing pastures and getting all those all those timely things. We have our own boom spray things that are critical time things in agriculture. We made a conscious decision to set ourselves up to be able to do those things. But things like shearing, where we're relying on, as a small operation, we we do still have some first cross use here that we use as recips for our embryo transfer program, and we get great support from our local shearers that help us with that. But it's an example of where we fit in with what they're doing. Whereas if the Aussie White program, we're not relying on anyone else, have to rely on the kids being home from school and uni holidays to help us with a bit of lamb marking and those sorts of things. But again, we're not tailing from a commercial enterprise point of view. We're not tailing the lambs.
3: We can keep on time with doing things because we're not getting put behind by, you know, like waiting on other people to come in and help us.
2: Yeah, we don't have any issues. Like we don't have issues with preg talks and those sorts of things because we're waiting on so, for example, we're shearing too close to lambing or those sorts of things. They're the sorts of things that I would suggest that people think about, whether it's that they're cropping and looking for a livestock enterprise to fit in with that and manage the time and labour issues there or whether they're doing what we do, working off farm and farming and trying to grow a business, it's, there's great flexibility. So
1: what does the future hold for you guys? Do you yearn for the 3,000 hectare property and 7,000 years or are you happy doing what you're doing for the time being?
3: well i'd like to probably be able to grow our, our numbers so we we've got sort of bigger joinings and all that because at the moment we've been trying to build our flock and we've had to rely on all different like number of joinings each year so even though we're dealing with a lot of small numbers we've had a lot of joinings so like we've always sort of have little lambings all the time
2: so julie's had the same amount of data collection work and recording work that we would if we were running a big commercial operation in an intense stud operation and I know I keep on getting reminded about that.
3: Yeah, just um, probably looking forward to sort of more numbers so we can have less joinings and sort of keep growing and because, yeah, we've just sort of been dealing with lots of little numbers.
2: From where we are at the stud realm, we're probably, Julie said we've built a stage and I mentioned earlier we're starting to have larger numbers of natural joinings that's allowing us to build, our numbers or build very quickly And obviously from that, we'll look to increase. And um, we transitioned away from commercial Australian whites because we've run out of space where we are here at the moment. We're running at sort of capacity. You know, if we could find the right block to expand what we're doing. Understanding the breed, we know how quickly we could go and run a commercial operation that whether we wanted to run 500 or 5,000, the simplicity of what we do and how the breed works means that we could go and do that.
3: And they're just a really nice animal to have running on your farm because they're placid. They're just a great breed.
2: For my final question, what
1: do you think is the big issue in Australian ag at the moment, Julie?
3: Well, I think like everyone, everyone feels a bit time poor, like they haven't got enough time. But in the ag sector too, finding resources to come and help you in the ag space is a big thing too. So,
2: What about you, Jack? I mean labor requirements and the challenges that we're facing across not just agriculture but all sectors at the moment is really pressing and I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon and looking and balancing I mentioned a minute ago I spent the last couple of days at some carbon farming type workshops we've got government regulation and different things that are going to be coming down our down the road at us at an international level and Australian agriculture's got to be ready for that we've got to understand what's happening on our farms from emissions point of view. We've always been custodians of the land and looking to improve that land. There's no doubt about that. And I think working out what we as producers want to do on our land assets that we're constantly improving. So having them ready for producing, you know, whether it's soil carbon, reducing our emissions, running an operation, which can fit into that with the labor constraints. And at the same time, we're trying to feed the world. So we've got this lovely Australian clean green product, but Pressures coming on us to do that and be seen to be also low emitters. So I I don't see it as a threat, I see it as one of the challenges and, and Australian agriculture is trying to work out how we fit into that space. It's a good answer. Thanks, Jack. Guys, it's been a great time out here and thanks for having me. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Ron. We'll send you home with some Aussie White Lamp. <laughs> Beauty. Thanks for listening.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Nerily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.